Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. What drives somebody to be successful and what drives somebody not to be successful? I think it's the competency, number one. It's the will and the attitude to never give up and always want to learn and the ability to let yourself learn from people that there are maybe not in the level that you are, whether it be a dishwasher. I learn from dishwashers and walking down the street. And if you're too pompous to realize that, then you know what? Get out of the business because you're just pissing everybody off. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. What if the labor crisis is a result of a leadership crisis? Could we build better businesses and a better industry simply by becoming better leaders? Could it be that simple? Is that even possible? Celebrity chef Robert Irvine specializes in making the impossible possible. Today we discuss how this career soldier from a modest background built an empire off the lessons in leadership he learned while in the military. So I was in the military for 12 years in the British Navy. Then I came here. I did cruise ships for about, I don't know, three years. And then I joined the Trump Taj Mahal Atlantic City. I stayed there four years, which was a very interesting time. Then I moved from Trump Taj Mahal to Caesars in Atlantic City. And then I pretty much started my own companies. And here we are, however many years later, um, doing numerous things, whether it be restaurants, whether it be food, whether it be nutrition, all those things that I do, liquor, all based around hospitality. So I would say most of my younger years were in the military, then cruise ships, then hotels. Never really worked in many restaurants as such, big operations. I'm curious to know, because seeing a large operation, and this was my career, right? When you work in small independent businesses, you think in that manner. So you think small. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but most independent restaurateurs hope to get a restaurant of their own, maybe two, maybe three. But you worked at scale and you worked at scale in these large organizations from an early stage. And I'm curious because you built a massive company with all of these different revenue streams coming in. Did working for big companies help you think big? I got to go back a bit. I think, first of all, the military taught me about leadership skills. And I said this before. For me, I found leadership before I found food in the military based on, you know, listen, I was a cook in the Navy for a while. And yes, you chop, chop, chop. You're throwing stuff together. You're making food. But it's really about the time management and the leadership skills of being able to take a group of people you don't know, make them work for a common goal in the amount of time you have to do it. So I think that was a great structure for me. Then when I got out of there, I was pretty much known as a fixer. So I could go in and fix anything at an early age, but I had to learn about it first. So I would go to these big companies. I worked with Renaissance or Marriott 
and really understood putting, I worked in Jamaica for two years and put two hotels together, which I was the only Caucasian there in the islands. And that was a huge learning experience for me because coming out of the military and expecting you to be there on a certain time, a certain day, da, 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 it never happened. When it rained, nobody came to work. Well, okay, you can scream and shout and jump and whatever. But I would report to my guy in the States in Baltimore and say, hey, listen, it's raining. Nobody comes to work. Why? And I had to dig in. There was no buses to get them from point A to point B. So I had to really fix the infrastructure of getting them to work to be able to be able to do my job. Otherwise, right. I'd be a single guy. So there was the fix. Okay, get buses to pick them up at certain times and drop them off at home so it could get to work. And I think that was a huge learning curve for me because I couldn't implement any menus, any recipes, any systems without people. After a year, I flew to Atlantic City or to Philadelphia, to Atlantic City, to look at Trump Taj Mahal and meet Donald Trump. It was kind of interesting because I got there the night before and I only had two days because they were my days off. I wasn't going to tell my boss I was running <laughs> to, to an interview. So I went there and so I met with all these people and my last thing was I had to cook. Well, it didn't happen till late at night, 6 p.m. And my flight was at 9. Anyway, I cooked. I was offered a job. I went there. And for the first four months, I was living in the hotel that Donald Trump owned next to the Taj Mahal. So I would go in at 6 p.m. at night. I would roam the halls. I would go into the restaurant. Nobody knew who I was. So for four months, that's what I did. I got all my data and information. And four months later, I started fixing the problems. I had a, a boss called Eric Kuburl who pretty much gave me court blinds to do whatever I wanted. 1,132 employees. The casino was doing 784 million a year on the casino floor and food and beverages was doing 15. Didn't need to make money. The casino was doing great. Then that turned because Donald Trump wanted to make money in food and beverage. And well, I fired 321 people. I spent a year of arbitrations and working with unions and saying, listen, guys, you give me guys and cook, I'll pay you whatever you want. Right. And that was an onward battle for four years there of really trying to change the culture of, I was an executive sous chef and there was three other executive sous chefs and I was a new kid on the block. Good luck trying to change the culture. But I did. We had 38 chefs and we bought in more chefs. The more we fired, the more we bought in. And we bought in better caliber chefs, corporate chefs from Messaluna and some really great French guys. And just to try and up the game of the 13 outlets of what is great food? But not only what is great food, how do we work together to create this culture of that everybody cares about each other instead of trying to screw each other over? I did that for four years. And we went from 15 million to 83 million a year. The whole time you're talking, I'm thinking, and I've seen your food. I've never dined in your restaurants, but I've seen your food and your food looks great. You're a talented chef. Personally, I've always been very thankful that I'm not talented, right? Because it's always forced me to work hard and to focus in on, I guess, attributes and skills that I could acquire. But it seems like looking at the industry as an insider and then also broadly with an outsider's perspective, Talent doesn't count for a whole lot when it comes to success, does it? So first of all, I'll attack the first thing you said there. I'm a good cook. I'm not a great chef. I never have been. But I can drop into Afghanistan and feed 20,000 people in two hours 
a meal that they can get them through to the next level. There are chefs out there way better technically than me, but I can pretty much throw anything together in the middle of nowhere with nothing. And I mean mm-hmm. that. There's not many people who can do that. I can cook for presents. I have. I was five of them. I can cook for my mother. It doesn't matter what it is, the skill level, you can achieve something. And you're right. You don't have to be technical to a degree to be successful. You have to understand what you're trying to accomplish. And success is different for every one of us, whether it be the podcast, whether it be a protein, but it doesn't matter. Success is only as far as we can dream it. And if you dream it and believe it, you can achieve it, right? That's the saying. So I feel that there are building blocks to success. You're successful yourself. You've got restaurants, you did all those things. What drives somebody to be successful and what drives somebody not to be successful? I think it's the competency, number one. It's the will and the attitude to never give up and always want to learn and the ability to let yourself learn from people that there are maybe not as high in the level that you are, whether it be a dishwasher. I learn from dishwashers and walking down the street. And if you're too pompous to realize that, then you know what? Get out of the business because you're just pissing everybody off. So I feel that this whilst there's better chefs out there, I think I've had a lot of experience and a lot of diversified situations to be able to, to pinpoint something that needs to happen. Let's talk about compromises. You spend a lot of time in the public eye and you make great money and you live the life that most chefs dream about. I'm wondering, what were the unexpected compromises that you made or the difficulties when you reached the level of success that you had dreamt about? First of all, I never dreamt of this success. Well, I don't think anybody can. When it happens, there's an ego that says, oh, I'm great and nobody can touch you and you're making money, right? And when you say a lot of money, I was making $4,000 an episode mm-hmm. way back when, right? And that's a true number. That was my deal. Guy Fieri went through the same thing and all the other people that sign away their life do the same thing. Compromise for me is, well, I compromise everything. I'm in the public eye. I sleep on a plane and I dribble. Somebody takes a picture of it. Or I drool. <laughs> I've made more mistakes than most, and you continue to make mistakes, but you have to be really careful when people look up to you. That's kids, that's adults, that's grandmas. Years ago, it used to be about me. By the way, your money you make, I mean, I give an awful lot away, which if you'd have said to me 10 years ago, you're going to give a lot of money away. I'm like, yeah, whatever, dude. (laughs) But I think you grow up with the responsibility of being that public figure. Well, I have, let's put it that way. But the compromise is, my kids, my wife, I travel 345 days a year. I'm on the road in a different country, different state every day. So there's a lot of compromises, more from my family than from me. So I think there's a lot of compromise for success. For anybody that says to you, there's time for family, there's time for this, that's garbage. It's absolutely garbage. There's no such thing. I talk to actors and producers, and there is no such thing as a stable life for a type A personality because when you achieve success, you want to continue to build something different. And I think that's the compromise. (laughs) I know that fear, the fear of losing everything or almost as bad, the fear that you'll have to grind on for years at the restaurant without things ever getting better. Hope is nice, but you need help. So I'm going to leverage my 20 years in this industry and the 200 interviews I've done to give you the help that you need. 
I'm hosting a free webinar this month called The Scaling Session. Over 90 minutes together, I'm going to lay out exactly what you need to do to scale profitability, scale brand awareness, and scale customer frequency. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to sign up today. To make sure that everybody gets what they need from the event, seating is limited. I'm only allowing 25 guests so that you all get the individualized attention that you deserve. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to secure your spot today. I want to dig into Restaurant Impossible. I think it's one thing to cook on television, and it's an entirely other thing to teach. And I think that imposter syndrome is a very real thing. And I'm curious to know, in the early days of the show, it's hard enough to coach, right? It's hard enough to teach in private, questioning yourself, questioning your ability to actually help people. What did that feel like in the early days of the show? It's interesting because the show has been running 13 years. Right. And we were the first, this type of show. It wasn't Gordon Ramsay. It wasn't anybody else. It was me. And I wrote the show four years before it actually came on. And I wrote it because I wanted to know what was next after Dinner Impossible. Dinner Impossible was actually called Fit for a King at that point. They changed the name to Dinner Impossible. In the middle of Dinner Impossible, the first six episodes were 22 minutes. And then they asked for more. We ended up doing 160, 180 shows, whatever before it went off air. And they said to me, well, what's next? And I wrote Restaurant Impossible to the Writers Guild. I wrote it down, sealed it, sent it off, and it became a show. And people said, well, what is this show? I'm like, I don't know what it is yet. I had an idea. We walk in and the first show was in New Jersey. And I'd been going to the White House two days a week to help cook. And the guy says, well, can you bring the president to the reopening the one of the first shows? And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, I don't have his schedule. That's not my world. And it was all about the fixtures and fittings and the chairs and the tables, not people. And it was really about my way or the highway. And over the years, again, this is working on yourself. I started to realize that I would go in, I would be like this, like that, 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 that. And no time because I have 48 hours. And if you look at the new seasons, the last four years, I listen a lot more. I don't speak enough until I've listened to their story. Then I can make a real judgment based on what I've heard. In the early seasons, I didn't do that. I just went straight in, whip, let's go. Let's get it done. We don't have time. I don't care what you feel. We need to do this. And I think that was the early voice. I had a lot of (laughs) people threatening to kill me and punch me, and some did punch me. And that was kind of a learning curve. And here we are three years, four years in the new season. And I've learned through, when we had a hiatus of all the shows for three years, I was really working on our business and really starting to understand, you know, in the big boy world of business, it's not just running one thing, it's running 3,000 things. And I think that was the change of realizing there's a lot of pain out there. I watched the evolution of your show. And over time, it does become more about the individuals involved, the personalities involved. I am positive that a dirty kitchen makes for great television. But at the end of the day, these are people really struggling. This is real people's real lives. And when they sign away and a production company, and this is a true statement, a production company has an idea of a story. And I don't know anything about the people I don't want to know because I don't want to taint my thought process. I want them sure. to tell me, then I have to figure it out. And they'll say to me, oh, this is going to be good. And we have one a couple of weeks ago, and there's one next week. 
I'm going to tell you, next week I throw up four times, five times. It's inconceivable to me that people allow people to not do their jobs, they clean and all those things. So when I started to get into a mark, some of us would say to me, oh, you know, I want you to do this. I'm like, no, no. This show is whatever I feel, when I feel it, how I feel it, and how you see it. If I get mad, you know it, the vein sticks out, it's here. When I throw up, it's real. There's one thing I swore, I would never fake television. And it had to be for the betterment of somebody else. So when I go in there and it's dirty, yeah, I'm mad. But now I got to clean it. And now I got to show them what it takes to keep that restaurant. And I got to show them a menu and show them the systems so that they don't fail. And I don't care about TV. So you'll see 42 minutes of TV. There's 48 hours, six cameras. But what you don't see, and I wish and I've asked for this, is behind the scenes when the cameras are off doing design stuff, when I'm sitting going through all the stuff they need to know, I'm like, tell me what you don't understand. I'm going to tell you what you don't, but what I see. And I sit there for hours and hours and hours to the point of I'll finish filming and turn cameras off at like nine o'clock so they can go home and we have GoPros and night people. And I stay. I stay mm -hmm. to make sure. I don't care how tired you are. I want you to understand what this is. It's not just food costs and labor. It's everything that goes into a business. And I can tell you there's only one family I don't keep in touch with out of those 13 years because he was an idiot. They went bankrupt. But I said, listen, just follow this and you'll be great. You will make a lot of money in this place. It was a beautiful designed restaurant in the middle of two main highways in Ohio. And he had all you can eat steak for $3. And I said, well, how can you do that when the steak costs you $5? Oh, it's volume. I'm like, oh, geez. Anyway, I took it off. Three weeks later, he put it back on. Three months later, it was done. And I always go back to that because what didn't I do to make him believe? And we've had a restaurant, Off Street Cafe in California, uh, $1.1 million in debt. I was back there literally because I was doing another show. I went there for lunch. They're doing $3.4 million a year. They paid off the $1.1 million, and they're successful. Not because I did the work. I just give them the pathway. Then they have to do the work. Well, it's these three essential elements, right? It's they have to believe in you. They have to believe in the program. And then the third, which is probably the most important and the biggest hurdle, they have to believe in themselves that they can work the program to be successful. And I work the program with them based on their equipment, their technical knowledge, their ability, and make a menu and say, look, here's what I would do. Now we start with a small menu. Then you can add once you feel comfortable and change. And I don't expect you to keep this menu for eight years. I expect you to take it educate the consumer because what you're doing sucks and then add to that as we go along and do your research. And those that have done it, they're amazing. You said something there that was kind of interesting. They have to believe in themselves. And when they do believe in themselves, then they listen to the customer says, well, why can't we have that? They may have only sold one of them a week or a month or a year, but we want it. And they do it. And then that's where they get into trouble. Oh, the creep, especially when it comes to menu size, menu scale. It's a very real thing. It is the easiest thing in the world to go from a 15-item menu to a 50-item menu over time. Yeah, for sure. You work in multiple tiers of dining, and you spend $10,000. Like, that's your budget to turn around a restaurant, which maybe in a bar concept or a fast casual 
concept, you can make that work. I was spending, like to open a fine dining restaurant, I was spending $10,000 on silverware. So for you, I've got to believe that you're triaging with a really finite budget. And so to make it actionable for the folks listening, if they had $10,000 sitting in a bank account in an active restaurant, where do you think are the best investments for them to spend that money where they'll get the highest return on investment? Well, I think that's a trick question. And I'll tell you why it's a trick question, because you've got to really analyze, number one, the ceiling, the floor, before you do anything else. Because they're the first things you walk in and look at. If the ceiling just needs painting, all right, that costs you 100 bucks, a whole ceiling. Spray paint, da, 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 right? The floor, a little bit more expensive. But if you clean the floor, it looks twice as good, and people don't clean floors. They're the two first things I look at. Then when I walk in the door, the tabletop. How does the tabletop look? Is it uh, a hardwood table? Is it covered with cloth, which I hate? Are the napkins cloths? What is the silverware like? What are the plates like? Because again, they're first things that we look at, the same as uniforms of the staff. Are they wearing blue jeans and a black top? And if they're all wearing it and it's nice and they're all wearing similar shoes, great. As a hair tie back. So I look at things that are really inexpensive. The tabletop is probably the most expensive. For a hundred bucks, I can take a base, spray it with black paint. You're gonna see on a new show I just done with John Taffer. Whereas me, I don't have a built-in, it's me. I spray the bases. I get a top for 100 bucks. screw a new top on it. I get great silverware, not ornate, very clean, very plain. I use paper, t- paper napkins. I don't use cloth, but a heavy gauge paper. And I look at the way the tabletop sets. New salt and pepper shakers. It sounds weird, but they're the first things you notice. What is the F in it, F and E? I can't always buy new chairs, but I can sand them, distress them, stain them. It doesn't take a lot of money to do that. That's how I can use the skill level of the Tom, the builders and whatnot to actually take what we have. If they're structurally sound, I can change them. If they can't, then that's slightly different. And if we're coming out of COVID, I don't want to walk into the same restaurant I left two years ago in COVID. I want to see it painted. I want to see a physical change. That's what I do with all these restaurants. I make a physical change in that $10,000. And the only time I go over that, I mean, it's slightly different now, but I had a restaurant where the restrooms literally backed up three inches of stuff into the restaurant and found that the whole pipe broke from the restaurant to the sewer to the main road. That cost me, I think, $30,000 to fix. We want to see a physical change. So if your walls are green, then make them blue whatever goes with the restaurant. So I walk in and it's physically different. And then in terms of operations, your sample size is massive, right? You've gone into hundreds and hundreds of restaurants. What are the universal issues you see? What are the things that most independents are consistently struggling with? You will laugh. And I go back to our beginning of our conversation. Leadership. Forget the food for a second. Who's doing what, why, when, and who's responsible who's held accountable, and then, right? So I think the leadership is the number one failing thing. Then small mom and pop businesses, they want to invite the world of their friends in. And look, we got a restaurant. Your mom says, I make the best sauce, the gravy, da-da-da. Come on in and don't pay. The portion sizes are too big. And you said that a second ago. Every restaurant I go into, I see them with carryout boxes. And that's why I do that first initial 
watch the restaurant work is because I look at the service, I look at the food, I look at the movements, I look at all these kind of things. And then I look at what's left on the plate afterwards. Oh, can we have a to-go box? Well, the portion sizes, a lasagna, how are you making money on it? What does it cost you? And this is what they do. And this is the biggest problem with mom and pops. Well, I buy the shrimp and I buy the fish and I buy the beef. I think it's about this much. When in actual fact, it's four times that much because they haven't done a recipe. They haven't costed it. They haven't taken into account all the things that we know, which is the overheads, the food cost and the labor cost, and then some. And they don't know how to cost it, which is so alien to me because in my young career, that's the only thing we were taught, beat over the head, know the cost of everything you make. In my house, I can tell you exactly what it is. So you have a budget for your house, but you don't follow through with your business. And I've had people with multiple outlets of restaurants they've worked for major chains that come in, get their own restaurant, and then they lose everything they were ever taught. I don't understand that. Let's talk about your restaurant. So you do have restaurants in active operations. And I would assume that you're not heavily involved in day-to-day operations, but I'm sure that you're... Are you? Yes, absolutely. So the interesting part, we have one in Vegas, Tropicana. Right. I have a full team there. We have 275 seats. I'm on the phone with them, FaceTiming every day if I'm not there. And before COVID, I was there every week, every week, in between everything else I was doing. Since COVID, a little bit different because we only reopened probably nine months ago, not due to us, but due to the casinos. Sure. I did a meal period. We never used to do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We used to do lunch and dinner. We added a meal period because we were the only restaurant open and our business went through the roof, which is kind of crazy. It was always busy, but now it's ridiculously busy. I mean, the process right now, we're trying to change. We change our menu once a quarter. So I have four corporate chefs that are there more than I am, obviously, but I'm on the phone with those corporate chefs all the time. We have one in the Pentagon that never closed, which is the only full service restaurant inside the Pentagon itself that never closed through COVID because we have to sustain a resiliency in our military. So I was asked to keep it open and I did. We didn't make any money. It wasn't about money. It was providing a service to those that are protecting our country. I'm on the phone every day. I get reports every day. I'm really heavily involved in that because it used to be 36,000 folks a day through the Pentagon itself, and we're right there. So resiliency for us, we have a food company that serves food across the globe for the military. So that's kind of a hub for me of our existence. So obviously very important. So I'm there all the time, literally physically and virtually in both of them. And the reason I am is because I don't want people to feel that, oh, Robert Irvine's got his name on it and he's never here. When we opened four years ago, not only was I there every week, but I had four months of training where the staff knew my wife, my kids, my likes, my dislikes, my hates, all those things so that when people came in, they could actually talk about the real Robert Irvine, not somebody you see on TV, although it's the same person, but what annoys me. And I would pick up things in my own restaurant that were wrong. And then when somebody would tweet me and say, hey, Robert, oh, the French fries were cold. I replied immediately and called the restaurant and got them on the phone. And and that's what I do. Because I want people to understand that I'm not just a guy on television that says, this sucks. I live and eat and breathe 
if you go into my restaurant, you're welcome anytime, you're welcome to go into the refrigerator and see what it's like. And I have that with my staff because I want people to see that I'm not all this. I stand up and I make mistakes. I own the mistake and I fix it immediately. And then I send you back to see it was fixed immediately. And so I'm a big believer in that. And I call everybody out, even my own staff. Luckily, it doesn't happen a lot, but it happens. We're human beings. We're fallible. So, And then you get the other side of that. It wasn't our fault. Nothing was wrong. We just get that person that wants to make a you know a fuss. And I treat them the same way as I would anybody else. Like, okay, if that's how you feel, let me fix it. Or who's your server? I literally am on the phone. Who's your server? Da, da, da. And they're like, oh, my God, he replied to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I want somebody to come over and I want to know the resolution before you leave that restaurant. I think it's important. Oh, I think it's critical. And one thing I've gathered through this whole conversation is that you have a clarity of vision. And it is nice to have the vision. It is a good to have and a need to have. But being able to translate that vision to your team, I think, is an essential element of leadership. And so if I was to ask a member of your team how you define success for them in that role, for the restaurant itself, what would they say? I would say they would say success to me is being able to take care of my people, number one. And when through COVID, and I'm very proud of this, we didn't lay anybody up, we paid everybody and all those kind of things. I think taking care of people is number one. I think giving a product that is superior and consistent is number two. And that doesn't matter whether it's liquor, whether it's bars, whether it's food, whether it's clothing, any one of those things. I think they're the two biggest things. And making sure that the guests or the purchaser, their expectations are met and exceeded. I think that's success. Money has never driven me. It never will. We have companies worth in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And one thing I believe in is that the core team that started with me are a part of that success. So if something sells, they all get something from that, right? Because they've all worked to build that company. And that includes a dishwasher that doesn't break a glassware or, or plates or silverware or throw them away. Everybody has a role. And many of my team wear different hats, multiple different hats. So I think that's what they would say. Success is being able to take care of other people. Let's talk about your brand. What do you hope or what do you think people say about you when you're not in the room? Listen, you're always going to have some haters (laughs) (laughs) and some naysayers. But I would like to think that the brand would stand on its own if I wasn't here, number one. The products stand on the quality. Yes, the persona gets you in the door to try something for sure. But you try it once, you don't like it, you're not coming back regardless. So the product has to stand on its own. I like to say that I live my life in a very strange way as if it was my epitaph. What would people say when I'm dead? Oh, he was a good guy. He was an asshole. He was a, what would they say? And I think people would say I'm intense, but intense for the right reasons. And I always took care of people. And the brand is that way, is built that way. And as we keep growing, it's about how do we make a difference in other people's lives? That's the foundation part of it. So everything we do is put into that foundation and multiple other foundations. You know, I have a school for 400 underprivileged kids in in, uh, North Carolina that I take care of in a huge way because they're things I believe in. My family, my mother's sitting to the right of me here. She leaves back to England tomorrow. We didn't have a lot of money. She still doesn't have a lot of money. When we grew up, we had second-hand clothes from Oxfam. You call it Goodwill. 
that's how we grew up. That's how we started to really, I don't know, you get your instincts from your parents and you learn from your parents the integrity and all those things. But then you go out into the big wide world and you have to figure out who do you stand for? Who are you? You can't live in the shadows anymore. What do you want to be? My sister is in a theater in, in Glasgow. My other sister is in Australia, married to a soldier, lifetime soldier, career soldier. And my brother is in France. He was in the military for many years. And they've all got their own kind of world. I want people to say, hey, listen, he made an impact in this many people's lives by doing this. And that's the foundation. That's the shows. That's everything that we do. It's never been about drinking the Kool-Aid. And I did 10 years ago. And I told you that earlier. I drunk the Kool-Aid and it was about me and the car and the house and those kind of things. Uh, that went away a long time ago. If I'm doing well, nobody else is. Stephen Covey said it, you know, the win-win situation. I went into a deal and I have the final say on all the deals, obviously. I went into the deal unless it's good for you and it's good for me and it's good for our foundation. Otherwise, I don't want to do it. I don't need to do things for the sake of doing things. I want it to make an impact of everything that we do surrounding food and beverage and hospitality and our military and first responders. So that's how we run our business. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Yeah, I would. I would say this. We talk about our military because the people who wear the cloth of our nation are amazing folks scattered around the world, about 2.8 million of them total, 1.4 million active duty and the rest of guard and reserves. Their families are support. They're amazing. But there are people less fortunate than us out there. And it doesn't have to cost money to do anything. It means opening the car door, walking somebody across the road, listening can save a life or more, and giving somebody a hug if they say it's okay. We all go shopping at supermarkets, and more frequently we've seen food go to the side and push aside. If you can afford to buy that food for that person without any fanfare, it may be for a child that's not being fed. And I think my challenge to everybody listening to this podcast and my team and everybody else is make a difference in somebody else's life, not somebody you know, because we can all do that and we all do that, but somebody you don't know every day. And if collectively we did that, our world would be the most amazing place. Stop the hate. Let's start helping each other and really focusing on what can we do for those less fortunate. And again, it's not money. It could be food. It could be listening. And I think if we all did that in our industry, and let's face it, hospitality industry, the most philanthropic group of people on this planet. We are good people. Let's spread that goodness somewhere else. That's Robert Irvine. For more on The Chef and his projects, visit chefirvine.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.